Whether you like crypto or not, over the last 10 years, it's been an amazing thing to own. It's been the best performing asset class in the world. It's not correlated to stocks and bonds. Institutional investors love non-correlated assets. And so we just show them the data. Look, if you had 99% of your portfolio and what you already invested, but you added 1% to crypto, look how much better you would have done over the last three years, over the last five years. Hello and welcome to DeFire, your ski goggles in the crypto blizzard. I'm Jonas, your guide, and today we are joined by Matt Hogan, the Chief Investment Officer of Bitwise Asset Management, the creators of the world's first crypto index fund. Matt is a crypto believer and he's betting his career on a future where crypto is the norm. And he's not just talking about Bitcoin, but also Ethereum, Cosmos, Solana, Uniswap, Avalanche, you name it. If you have been a while in crypto, you may have heard the chatter about the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. Matt serves these institutional players and he understands their needs and ways of thinking. Today's conversation offers a deep insight into the minds of the big players. And while none of the discussed is financial advice, I'm sure there are many valuable lessons in this episode that you can apply to your crypto journey. So strap in listeners as we're diving deeper into the crypto cosmos. By the end of this episode, you'll have fresh insights and strategies to weather the crypto blizzard. But before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. Cryptovalley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. If you want to get your company or project in front of our growing audience, visit DeFi.money or send me an email jonas at defire.money to learn more about the defire community it's always good to have on record your name and, and you know your position and what you're doing i love it yeah so matt hogan i'm the chief investment officer at bitwise asset management and bitwise is a specialist crypto asset manager we've been in the market since 2017 we're based in the us but as we were discussing earlier have products abroad including in switzerland and partner products in Australia. We're best known for having created the world's first crypto index fund, and I believe we're the world's largest crypto index fund provider. But today we have 20 different products, including a DeFi index fund, a metaverse index fund, NFT index fund, variety of SMAs, and even a hedge fund of funds uh, that we run primarily for institutional investors. So that's us. We've been in the market, as I said, for five years, we've seen ups and downs and we think we're in a new major bull market cycle, and I'm really excited about that. Great. And Matt, I think, I mean, me personally, and also I guess my audience is more retail focused, the people that you, you see on, on crypto Twitter, but I think it's actually exactly this bridge that we can have between institutional investors who have another view on things and retail investors. Sometimes when I look around and scroll through Twitter, I have the feeling that people don't have the basic information about investing in, in crypto. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you are aware of the midwit meme mm -hmm. with the bell curve, right? 
Yeah. Where you have on, on one side is like the let's say the less intelligent gentleman, and he says something, and then there comes like the the, the majority of the people who are like in the IQ. It's it's a bell curve of IQ, yeah, and and they say it's something very complicated, and then at the very end is like this very smart guy, and he says basically the same thing as the stupid person, right? And one thing that I've seen there was like somebody kind of saying, okay, you know, pick a coin. Let's say Doge is good, and then. The other one on the other side also says Doge is good. And then the people in the middle say, no, you have to have a very diversified portfolio, etc." Yeah. And I've been thinking about that meme for a long time, specifically this gap between having a concentrated bets and having a diversified portfolio. And you as a fund manager, obviously you have your thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love that framing. I think it's really true of a lot of crypto. I think... There are a lot of retail investors for whom crypto is just obvious. The world's you know, existing financial system doesn't work very well for most people. Money's the slowest moving thing in today's society. We all experience inflation with fiat currencies. And so for some, it's just easy and obvious that there should be this alternative. And crypto and blockchain is effectively that, right? It's money for the internet era. It's decentralized money that you can own for yourself. And there is this like fat middle where I think people get confused when we talk about all the shortcomings that blockchain has, like any new 13-year-old technology. Of course, it has shortcomings. Of course, it has issues. Of course, there's fraud. And of course, there are things that need to be improved. And you can talk yourself out of it. And then at the far right tail of the curve, there are people who have gone through that process and realized that the fundamental technology is undeniable, that it is the way for money to move in the digital era. We're an increasingly digital age. Of course, it's going to be one of the most disruptive technologies of our time. So I think there are, there's actually a lot of truth in that meme that you can talk yourself out of some things. When it comes to portfolio construction, you know, you're just talking about different approaches. If you're, if you're aiming for the most spectacular returns, Obviously, a concentrated portfolio of one or two names is probably the way to go because you could pick the next Dogecoin, right? Or you could pick the next big thing. For many institutional investors who actually don't have as much time to spend on this area of the market as many retail investors, right? Because they have mm -hmm. broad portfolios and they have to think about stocks and bonds and alternatives and commodities and real estate and so on. They just want broad-based exposure. And for them, buying an index that guarantees that they'll participate in crypto's growth over time without having to worry about, you know, was the recent 25-minute delay in finalization of Ethereum an issue or not, right? They don't want to think about that. They just want the exposure. So for them, an index-based strategy can make a great deal of sense. It really comes down to the amount of time and your appetite for risk. Mm -hmm. But you, you as a, an index fund, and you have many products, but I think the most, probably the longest standing one must be the one, the crypto, where, where you have 10 crypto products, right? You have Bitcoin, Ethereum, then you have some other layer ones, you have Polygon. I think you've seen Uni, and obviously it always changes as you rebalance. But you still have to pick them, right? I mean, 10 is not the whole market. How do you, do you go about picking the right coins for that specific fund? Yeah, great question. And it's absolutely true. 
you know, the primary driver is market capitalization. In other words, what is the largest crypto asset? Because we think that's actually a proxy for its likelihood of success, right? It's mm -hmm. difficult to challenge Bitcoin in part because it's the largest and it's been around the longest as the most robust network. But we screen out a lot of assets. So what we focus on from a choosing perspective is actually not which assets are going to deliver the highest return over X period of time, but rather what risks can we identify that we want to avoid? So as an example, we won't hold an asset where we think there's custodial risk. We won't hold an asset that has a fundamental technological flaw in its design. For instance, we didn't hold Luna, even though it was like the fourth largest asset in the world at some point, because we identified the flaw that would cause it to blow up. We also avoid assets that we think have specific regulatory risk for the domicile that we're investing in. So if it's a US-based fund, does it have specific US regulatory risk, et cetera? And so we try to screen out these assets that have risks that could one day cause them to be like Luna and go to yeah. zero. And then for the rest of the market, we try not to be too smart. We just want to hold a bunch of them. So if ETH wins, great. If Solana challenges it, great. If Cosmos competes, great. If Sushi overtakes Uni, we'd rotate Sushi in, et cetera. We try to let the market pick that, but we try to avoid these blowups and we manage to avoid Luna, and we avoided FTT, and we avoided a few other major blowups in the space as a result. Yeah. And congrats, because I guess a lot of listeners also, they, they, they fell down the, in, into the trap of Luna and Terra. Yeah. And I had, for instance, Do Kwon on the show just before he launched, actually, the, the Anchor Protocol, right? That was so dangerous. And also lost coins there, to be honest. And I find that interesting that you could... Like now, looking back at it, I was questioning myself, was it really so clear? And I've also seen that you have another fund, maybe jumping around a little bit, where you invest in companies that are investing in, in crypto as well. Like, like mm -hmm. for instance, Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And the founder of Galaxy, Mike Novogratz, famously was into Luna, which made me believe it was not so clear. But at your firm, was it super clear? Okay, Luna, Terra is yeah. destined to fail. Was that like a common knowledge uh, in your office, like people were always talking about it or? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. I would say, first of all, your, your, your listeners shouldn't beat themselves up if they were invested in Luna. As you mentioned, Mike Novogratz was big involved. He's an extremely successful investor. A number of other crypto hedge funds, Pantera, et cetera, had exposure to the space and they are excellent investors. So there were a lot of investors mm -hmm. with extremely good track records who nonetheless ran into this. From our perspective, you know, we had been studying the algorithmic stablecoin space since 2018. You might remember projects like Basis and others. And what we, what we had seen over the, the course of time is that all of these projects had failed. Luna actually wasn't the first algorithmic stablecoin to fail. It was like the eighth algorithmic stablecoin to fail. And there were big projects that didn't even get off the ground. And so we had done studies back in 2018 and 2019 about this question of building an algorithmic stablecoin. And we couldn't see how it would work. So we were maybe uniquely positioned to, to avoid this particular risk. So once we saw it evolve, emerge, we revisited those studies and came to the same conclusion that it was subject to spiral risk and we thought might break over time. Now we could have been wrong. There's definitely world scenarios 
where it gets large enough and it succeeds. And we would have missed that opportunity, but we're very conservative crypto investors. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I would say to your listeners, it's free to go to our website, bitwiseinvestments.com and look at what we hold. And one thing you can do if you're thinking about allocating to a large crypto asset is see if we hold it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in something that we don't hold. But if you see something that's like number six in the world, but not in our index fund, it's probably a signal that you need to do a little bit of extra due diligence because at least one institutional investor is saying, I'm not comfortable with this asset. And maybe that, that, can, that can help people create a screen for their own, own strategies. Ah, that that that's interesting. And uh, well, I noticed, for instance, that you don't have Tron, which mm -hmm. which is also a bigger coin, right? But you have the L1s, Avalanche. You have Polkadot. You have Solana. You you even have Cardano. That mm -hmm. so yeah, that that must say something. There must be maybe a geographical risk or a risk with the founder or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There 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 are a number of risks we've identified with Tron. That's a good one to call out. There's some some core underlying technical risk in the blockchain. There's there's certainly regulatory risk. Again, that doesn't mean it won't be successful. As an example, there's a huge amount of Tether printed on the Tron ecosystem. Tether is doing exceptionally well. And so it doesn't mean that Tron won't be a successful coin. It just raises too many risks to enter into our index. So you're right to call that out. And on the flip side, as you, as you called out as well, there are assets like Cardano that many people in the crypto ecosystem don't like that don't have yet a lot of real world use case that are very much future state, but which pass our sort of binary risks for at least what we're, what we're seeing right now and concerned about. Of course, we update this every month. We re, redo our due diligence on these assets and, and consider them for the future. Yeah. And as you already mentioned, I mean, the, the product that you're offering is to give people or institutional investors exposure. Right. It's not like a fund where you say now we buy and now we sell and we find the perfect moment like, like other funds do, for yes. instance. And I, I would like to actually ask you this. Who, who, in your perspective, did the most harm to institutional investors among these people? <laughs> Do Kwan, SPF or Gary Gensler? Ooh, that is a, that is a tricky one. That is a tricky one. That's really a, a, a pantheon of the greats in terms of the setbacks for crypto. You know, I, I would say it, it, it was probably SBF for the institutional crowd for the following reason. There was a huge amount of institutional venture capital investment that flooded into crypto, specifically into SBF, some of the largest names in the space. And institutional investors are fine with losing money. So they're fine with, you know, making a bet that doesn't work out but they're not fine with fraud and evaporation. It raises more existential questions. So to give the other, you know, the other side of it, Gary Gensler is currently, in my view, hostile to the crypto asset market and isn't doing enough to push forward sort of new levels of regulatory clarity. And so he is holding back crypto. And certainly the lack of regulatory clarity keeps institutional investors on the sidelines. But again, they're okay with the market you know, maybe not achieving what it could as long as it's still progressing. Whereas SBF really raised fundamental questions about due diligence in the space for many institutions. I felt like he sort of stole a year of my life, you know, that we had been building around and sucked some of the momentum out. Yeah, that was a, that was a challenging moment. But I do think we're getting past it now. 
you know, hopefully we can focus on things like regulatory clarity. Yeah. And on the, on, on the other side, like who, who do you think did the most for, for crypto adoption? Also looking from an institutional perspective, I have here, you know, Michael Saylor, who, who is very outspoken, of course, mm -hmm. he may seem a little bit crazy. Elon Musk, mm -hmm. there it's more joking around, right, with Doge. But mm -hmm. then I also found uh, Kathy Wood, or I hope mm -hmm. I pronounced that right, Kathy or Katie. No, Kathy, right? Kathy, yeah. yeah. And she is a, a very famous investor, very bullish on, on crypto as well. Yeah, let's see. Of, of those three, I would say Kathy Wood. I do think that many people see Michael Saylor as on the, a little bit on the fringe, even though he's a great mm -hmm. champion for Bitcoin. And Elon Musk, of course, waffles back and forth on crypto. But Kathy is seen as, as a real thought leader in the space. And I do think has opened people's minds to crypto. You know, one thing that uh, that has to happen for an institutional investor to come into the crypto market is there has to be someone that they respect and trust that tells them to look at it a little bit more carefully. Because often their first interaction with it will be through a media report or, or some negative development like SBF. And they need someone mm -hmm. serious to sort of grab them and shake them and say, this is more interesting than you think. So I, I think Kathy fits that bill. A few others that I would throw into the mix, certainly Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, I think is an exceptional CEO and puts forward a positive orientation for crypto that resonates with institutional investors. And then there are a large number of venture capitalists in crypto that do real hand-to-hand -hand combat, meeting with institutions day in and day out, teaching them about what crypto is and what crypto isn't and doing the hard work of education. So. There, there, there are a lot of champions on that side of the aisle. And do you feel, because now politically in the US, right? I mean, what we see here from far is that it could become a partisan issue. Some people have already started to, some attacks against crypto. How high up is that in, in your list of things that you have to worry about when you run a fund? Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate, right? Obviously, it shouldn't be a political issue. It's a technology. Right? We should be debating its merits and regulating for investor protections while allowing innovation to proceed. Actually, something that both Switzerland and then more recently Europe broadly has been taking the lead on. Switzerland has always had very progressive, balanced regulations around crypto. And Europe recently passed MICA, which is balanced and progressive. We certainly worry about it here at Bitwise. You know, it is the case, it's very hard to get major legislation on either side through Congress right now in the US. And it leaves us in this sort of regulatory murk. And I think it is pushing the crypto industry abroad. So it, it's something that concerns us greatly. We're long-term optimists. When we go to Washington and talk to our congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle, there's more support for balanced crypto regulation than maybe the mainstream media perceives. There are definitely extremes on both sides, but we see space in the middle for progress, but it's an uphill battle. I do think the U.S. is potentially squandering a leadership position in crypto to its peril, and I'm hopeful that we get it right, but there's no guarantee that we will. Mm -hmm. And you are, you're sitting in, in San Francisco, is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right, yes. So a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it's already a month ago or so, I guess... Everybody was very upset because the, the the bank failure of Silicon Valley Bank, right? I guess you must have been close 
or feeling that closely. I'm not sure if the fund is somehow involved in it. I don't believe it is, or it might be, I don't know. Did that, you know, like the macro level or what's going on, the banking crisis, how that, did that kind of change the narrative now with crypto? Yeah, it's a great question. Fortunately, Bitwise was not directly affected by that. We didn't bank at an SVB or First Republic, and we have multiple banking relationships, so our operations were unimpacted. I actually think that played into crypto's hands. At the core of crypto, at the core of crypto is, you know, this idea that you could be your own bank and your own financial institution without relying on these outside entities. And so anything that, you know, destroys trust of centralized institutions indirectly benefits crypto. And so I do think the bank failures, which happened and I think will continue to happen. I don't think we're out of the woods. I think we'll see more in the future will push people on the edges towards crypto. It's worth noting, of course, and you know this, crypto was born out of a financial crisis. I'd also add the best single month in Bitcoin's history was during the Cyprus banking crisis, where they haircut investors with more than half a million dollars. So I do think anything that harms trust pushes people over into the crypto bucket. I think we saw that after SVB and after First Republic. And if more banks fail, I think that will become even stronger here in the US. Yeah. I mean, we, we have seen some very prominent voices and uh, lately a bet, right, of the, the Bitcoin, one, the $1 million Bitcoin bet by right. Balaji that has raised some, raised some eyebrows again in, I guess, uh, in and outside of crypto. When you, and you, you seem to be more, you know, like a, not such an extreme character. You seem to have like a very balanced view, as balanced probably as your portfolio in crypto is. Right. How was your reaction when you, when you heard about that bet? Yeah. I mean, obviously we all knew he was going to lose the bet. <laughs> so, you know, that I don't, I don't sort of love stunt marketing activities. And this was a little bit of a stunt marketing activity. I do think there is this rising concern in the U S about our rapidly escalating debt and, um, there being no clean way out of this crisis for the US. We do have mm -hmm. record deficits and record building debt and the interest payments on those debt represent a larger and larger share of government expenditures. And that's a cycle that typically ends in debt monetization and massive inflation. And so I think what Balaji was pointing out was that we are headed in that direction. Where he went wrong is he had a 90 day time cycle mm -hmm. on it. And, you know, it's probably a decade long trend. So hopefully it raised people's attention that there is this inevitable crisis coming for the U.S. But I do think, you know, it's, it's really far offshore. And I should add that, you know, my bullish case for crypto doesn't depend on that wave coming to shore anytime soon. It is coming. It's going to be a real issue and it will be nice to be diversified in crypto when it does. But I think crypto can, you know, significantly grow even while we muddle along from this debt perspective. Mm -hmm. Also looking at the, the outlook for crypto and maybe adding some, some other voices in, in there. I mean, famously, Warren Buffett says crypto, it's rat poison, right? And he's looking at it probably from his lens that has served him very well from a value investor's perspective. And nowadays, it's really hard, even if you would like to look at the, the fundamentals of a protocol token, what, what should be the fair worth of one of these tokens of Ethereum it's maybe even a little bit easier because now it's deflationary and, you know, you have some protocol revenue, et cetera. But 
what kind of mental models or, or, or models to value those tokens are out there and that you also apply in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it varies by token and I'll give you two and then we can maybe do three if you want to. Bitcoin is the easiest. So importantly, Warren Buffett also thinks gold is stupid, right? You dig it up mm -hmm. out of the ground and then you put it back in the ground and hire people to stand around it. That's another one of his quotes. He doesn't understand <laughs> the value of assets that have no cash flow and neither Bitcoin nor gold have cash flow. But of course, gold is a you know $13 trillion market, right? Mm -hmm. It is not a small asset and people have relied on it as a store of value. When I think of Bitcoin, uh, the, the, the only way I've seen to value it, and I think it's the right way, and this is something that Kathy Wood and I share, is you look at the markets it's going after. It's going after the gold market. It's going after the offshore wealth market. It's going after narrow monetary channels like remittances and maybe use in emerging market countries with very high inflation rates. And maybe it just has a role as an alternative in institutional portfolios. And you can aggregate up those market capitalizations that those markets it's going after. And you end up saying it's going after a market that's somewhere in the 30 to $50 trillion range, right? 30 to $50 trillion. And so if it was successful in taking over all of those markets, uh, it would grow from half a trillion dollars today to $50 trillion in the future, which is a 100x return. I don't think it's going to take over all those markets by any means, but I do think it could take 20% of the gold market, right? And that's two and a half, three trillion dollars. That's five or six X from where we are today. And that's just one of the markets it's going after. I do think it could take 10% of the offshore wealth market, because it's a great way to store wealth offshore in a way that's protected from government seizure, easily movable across borders, easy to store, et cetera. And that's another couple trillion dollars. So I think the best way to value Bitcoin is to aggregate up all these markets it's going after. And when you do that, what you realize is it's really small today. And whether it's going to grow, you know, 5x or 10x or 20x if it's successful, it's many orders of magnitude versus where it is today. Ethereum is, is different and more challenging because it has these two things that Bitcoin doesn't have. Uh, one, it has effectively cash flows, right? So people pay fees to use the Ethereum network. You can aggregate those up and you can say it did a quarter billion dollars in revenue in Q1. So annualize that and it's, it's, it's a couple billion dollars in revenue. And then you can look at its market cap and you can assign it effectively a price to earnings ratio. Now it's not perfect because it's not earnings, they're not paying dividends, they're doing buybacks, but it gets you in the ballpark. The complicating factor is it also has this yield component if you're willing to stake it. And, and we try to think of those as two separate things. There's a great piece out recently by Van Eck, which is a competitor of ours, but I'll call it their research, tried to arrive at a valuation model for, for ETH that I thought was pretty good. And they got somewhere in the range of, I think $11,000 or something. Okay, I, I would potential those, those approaches. Yeah. Is that like the, the potential, the max potential, or what would that be like a fair value? I think what they did was they forecasted out the amount of fee revenue in Bitcoin 20 years from now. I believe that's mm -hmm. right. And then they discounted backwards from that period to today mm -hmm. uh, using a 12% discount factor to arrive at a, a present value. Well, that's what you do in traditional financial models. You forecast earnings out to the future and then you discount backwards. 
but you can actually find their report. I think if you, if you just type in Vanek Ethereum valuation approach, it's, it's one of the best ones I've seen. I would importantly say that a lot of the early valuation models that were thrown around, things like stock to flow or monetary velocity, I don't put much stock in those. I don't think they're predictive. I don't think they're accurate. I think this addressable market for Bitcoin and then this cash flow like approach for Ethereum is probably the best approach, the best we can do. Okay. You know, have you ever read the, or I'm sure you have heard about the book. Now I, I don't know the name anymore. You know, like the, the history of men, like sapiens. Yep. Yep, sapiens. Yes. Yeah, for sure. One thing that stuck with me was, you know, like he, he paints this very vivid picture of people being like the storytelling animals, right? And that everything is kind of a narrative from religion to money. And when you hold a stock, what do you actually hold? And since then, I'm always thinking about the power of narratives. For instance, also what you, what you said before, like a PE ratio looking at it from through this lens also seems to be just a narrative that has established itself and suddenly like everybody knows about it and it has kind of spread out and then everybody takes these things for granted how you know is, is there something there that that you, that you see now also spreading with the crypto narrative or a narrative that you find interesting so to say like the mind virus is spreading, right? A, a narrative could be also a mind virus. It's like suddenly people believe in, in, in one of those narratives and then it becomes real. Um, right. What yes. is going around right now? And especially also from institutional perspective, they might have a different view, right? Than, than what I see on crypto Twitter all day. <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, I would say broadly speaking, Bitcoin itself is a narrative that there can be a digital store of value that people will come to know and trust. And I do think that that mind virus is spreading. Right. The idea that Bitcoin would be in institutional portfolios five or six years ago was ridiculous. It was actually ridiculous. And 10 years ago, it was so ridiculous. Bitcoin was trading for a few dollars. Why would anyone care? It's this made up thing. It's not tangible. And now you have some of the largest investors in the world that are putting it on their balance sheets. And so I do think over the long term, that narrative of Bitcoin as, as digital money is really gaining traction. I could talk about why people get the narrative wrong in a minute. But the other one that's gaining traction is Ethereum as this sort of app store for our decentralized future and this platform that people can build things on. I really think, based on my conversations with institutional investors over the last year, that this idea actually resonates more with them than the Bitcoin idea. That they understand that there can be value in decentralized networks. They understand that, let's say, a decentralized Twitter would be a wonderful thing or a decentralized trading tool would be a wonderful thing. And they love the idea that there are thousands of applications on Ethereum and millions of users and that they're growing very fast. And they've seen that story before. So I think that narrative of ETH as a platform for decentralized applications in the same way iOS is a platform for apps is a big deal. And both of those narratives, I say, are, are gaining traction. Oh, that, that's good to hear and interesting because that, that brings up the flippening, right? <laughs> Do you mm -hmm. think, I mean, a lot of your fund is basically so much based on the, the market cap, right? I mean, mm -hmm. right now, if you invest in your fund, you basically have 60 or 70% Bitcoin or exposure yeah. to Bitcoin. And then a little bit of Ethereum and then a long tail of different mm -hmm. projects. Mm -hmm. Do you believe the flippening, which is also this narrative, this meme, 
could become a reality given those two narratives. One, one the gold narrative, right? That is the dominant one in, in Bitcoin. And then Ethereum with this more, yeah, the app store or other people say now the, the, the ultrasound money meme, right? I'm not sure right. if that has already picked. Uh, yeah, on. what do you think? It's a great question. You know, I, I have three kids and I think they're all going to be amazing. And it's hard for me to tell you which one of my three kids is going to be the most amazing. And I feel the same <laughs> about Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think they do mm -hmm. fundamentally different things. I do think Bitcoin is trying to be digital gold. And I do think Ethereum is a platform for decentralized applications. And I think both of those markets can be exceptionally valuable. I think it's entirely possible that ETH flips Bitcoin because it has more real world use cases and it might get more institutional buy-in and the cash flow thing is very real. And we're seeing supplies fall at one plus percent a month. I mean, one plus percent annualized and that's never happened with any commodity in the history of the world. And it's an amazing fact. But I also think Bitcoin is going after a multi-trillion dollar market and it's winning market share very fast. And so I'm bullish on both. I think it's a reasonable question how you weight them. And we offer products that do both. You mentioned our uh, Bitwise 10 crypto index fund, market cap weights them. So right now you have about twice as much Bitcoin as you do ETH. We also offer a separately managed account, which is like an offering just for one investor that equally weights them. So you get exposure to both equally. I think they're both valid approaches. So will it happen? I bet it will happen at some point. I don't know if it will be a permanent flip or if it will flip back at some point. But my, my core thesis is I think both will be very successful over time. And it's just a matter of who grains more market share when as to whether that, that flipping mm -hmm. happens. And Matt, how does one talk to institutional investors? Like what is, what do they want to know? What is important for them? What are their reservations? You oh, know, give I, us a little bit of insight in the mind of an institutional investor. I love it. I will. Let me do one more flippening thing. I think a maybe more interesting flippening is will Ethereum flip JP Morgan as the most important <laughs> financial services platform in the world? JP Morgan has a market cap about $400 billion, mm -hmm. uh, which is significantly higher than Ethereum, but less than Bitcoin. And I do think I'd bet on Ethereum flipping JP Morgan. I don't know about Bitcoin itself, but uh, you can mark me down for that one. Okay. That's uh, interesting. All right. How do you talk to institutional investors? The first thing you need to do is to correct their misperceptions about what crypto is. Because crypto was labeled a cryptocurrency, in the minds of many people who haven't thought about it much, they're going to use it the same way they use the dollars in their wallet, which is they're going to go to Starbucks and they're going to buy a mocha frappuccino and they're going to pay for it in Bitcoin. And I think that's very unlikely, right? Like I've never paid for a coffee in gold and I don't think I'm going to pay for my coffee in Bitcoin here in the US for a long period of time. So you need to talk to them about what crypto actually is. You need to explain that it's this new sort of technological platform that lets money move at the speed of light, that lets you program money like software, that lets you have digital property rights and you just sort of show them what that could mean in the future. So you need to correct their misperceptions, and then build this new base of what crypto is and could be. And that's really challenging. It's hard to correct people's initial impressions. 
One of the reasons institutions have been so slow moving into crypto is because they're anchored on this idea that you're going to use it like you use dollars. And it's just hard to break that and build it back up. But that's what we do. The other thing we do is we just talk about what it does in a portfolio. And, you know, whether you like crypto or not, over the last 10 years, it's been an amazing thing to own. It's been the best performing asset class in the world. It's not correlated to stocks and bonds, which means if stocks go up, crypto may go up or it may go down. If stocks go down, crypto may go up or it may go down. Institutional investors love non-correlated assets. And so we just show them the data. Look, if you had a 1% allocation to crypto, if you had had 99% of your portfolio and what you already invested, but you added 1% to crypto, look how much better you would have done over the last mm -hmm. three years, over the last five years. And we try to confront them with cold, hard data, but it takes time. It's not a one-time meeting. It takes a year, it takes two years, but we, we stay after them and eventually they come on board. <laughs> okay. And I, I assume that's a lot of, uh, you know, like handshaking meetings, dinners, events like that, or, or, or yes. is it like cold calling somebody, do you have a moment? Do you have uh, five minutes to talk about crypto? It's a little bit of both. I mean, we actually, so we have a 25 person sales team and all they do all day is talk to financial advisors and institutions and family offices about crypto. We do a lot of going to conferences and speaking about crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of dinners and lunch seminars about crypto. But then, you know, once you've met people and given them the basics, they're going to want to learn more. They're going to want to follow up. So we do a lot of listening to them. The other thing we do is we try to write research that resonates with institutional investors. So as an example, I co-authored the CFA Institute's Guide to Bitcoin Blockchain and Crypto Assets. If you're not aware of the CFA Institute, it's like the number one credentialing organization in the financial industry, a very serious organization. And we tried to write a very balanced guide that gives people the basics. So, you know, we try to show up where these institutions are and put on a suit and tie and talk to them about what crypto is and what crypto isn't without the hype and hyperbole that can sometimes surround the space, which I love a lot of what's going on in crypto and blockchain, but there is also a lot of hype and hyperbole that you have to cut through to get to what's real. And so we, we try to do that for institutions. Yeah. And the CFA, basically, I cannot say on this podcast as a, everything is not financial advice. The CFA are those people that can say that they are giving financial advice, right? Um, are there people out there already kind of uh, giving financial advice on crypto? Because I, I haven't seen that here mm -hmm. yet. I feel it's more coming, you know, grassroots, bottom up people who go to their financial advisor ask about crypto and usually they don't have a product at the bank, yeah. right? They cannot offer anything. So they kind of like advise not to invest. Yep. Is that already changing? Is this a meaningful change? Yeah, it, it's absolutely changing. You know, here in the US, I can speak to it and then maybe talk what my experience in Europe. We do a study of, of financial advisors or IFAs as they're, they're referred to often in Europe. In the US every year, we've done it for five years, and we ask what percentage are telling their clients to allocate to crypto or helping their clients allocate to crypto. And when we started five years ago, it was really small. It was about 4%. And today it's about 15%, one five. Now that's not a lot, 
right? It means that 85% of financial advisors do not have any clients with allocations to crypto, but it's not zero and it's growing substantially. And we see that at Bitwise as well. We serve more than a thousand financial advisor clients at Bitwise. Now there are 300,000 financial advisors in the US. So a thousand is a fraction of the market, but again, it's not zero and it's growing quickly. I do think in Europe, it's a little bit slower. There is more of a barbell distribution in Europe where there are a lot of retail participants and there's some institutional participants and these advisors in the middle haven't allocated. That has a lot to do with how the European financial advisor or IFA market is structured. But I think it will happen in Europe as well. We've, we've certainly seen some green shoots there and certainly a lot of interest. So I, I do think that that will come along as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you sell your product, what do you actually buy? I mean, we all know, and you we mentioned it before, like crypto, you can become your own bank, but you're selling a product that is kind of giving you exposure and is going after the whole index. But underneath that, do you own, do you really buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these coins that we mentioned? Or yeah. is this like a, a synthetic product that is just charging the price? Nope, it's absolutely physical. So we go out and buy... Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cardano and Solana and Polygon and Polkadot and Litecoin and Avalanche and Uniswap in the exact proportion that they are in our fund. And then we hold them in an institutional custodian in, in, in a cold storage solution. And, uh, you know, as a result, we're one of the larger Bitcoin holders, you know, in the world, certainly in the, in the, in the top, you know, hundred, but that's what we've been doing for five years and it's gotten mm -hmm. a lot easier. It was really hard to do that in 2017 when we started. There weren't good custodial solutions. Trading was more difficult. It's gotten easier. But yeah, we hold it physically. They're all physical products. Yeah. And, and you mentioned before you have around 20 salespeople only, right? I mean, how big is the organization? Because I've seen that the, the asset under management is around 500 million for the one with the 10, the 10 right. crypto coins. And if you usually ETFs don't have a high fee, right? I mean, I guess if a bit crypto, it's a little bit less competitive because it's a specialized product, so you, you can take a higher fee. But at the end of the day, is it a good business to to run such a ETF? Yeah, yeah. The, the fee is substantially higher in the crypto market. So the fee on that product is is two and a half percent, which is about what the market fee is. About about online with our peers. Yeah, we have about 64 people. I think it's a great business. You know, we, we are building a crypto institution for the long haul. We think crypto is going to be a multi-trillion dollar market cap uh, asset class. And we have a shot at being, you know, one of the largest crypto asset managers in the world. And we think that's a very valuable business. So we're investing in it for sure. We want to make sure we do everything world class. So we have a, you know, a nine person research team to make sure we're up to date and doing things like studying Luna when it comes to the market. We have that sales team. We have a, a, a world-class portfolio operations and tax team. You know, it takes a lot of people to run a institutional asset manager, but we think we're, we're well-staffed for it. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to institutional investors, you know, how would you, how would you tier them? Let's say for instance, you know, there's like the, the funds that, that you need to go, the retirement funds, right? Then you have Harvard, they probably do it stuff a little bit differently. They might be, you know, 
what are the the biggest players and how do they differentiate? Which ones are the most forward-thinking ones? Yeah, great question. Probably the most forward-thinking are family offices. So these are professional organizations that manage money, usually for one or sometimes for a handful of families. And uh, these families are, are ultra wealthy and they have long-term time horizons and they're often interested in innovative corners of the market. And so that is sort of the leading edge of institutional adoption. I'd say right behind that are RAAs, which are the U.S. equivalent of IFAs, which are individual financial advisors that don't operate in a big bank or institution, but make decisions for themselves and their clients. And they are open to crypto as well. Behind them, we're seeing, you know, real progress, albeit slow, on the, the, the true institutional endowment side of the spectrum. Uh, you mentioned Harvard as an example of that, but those are, are very long-term investors, right? Harvard's investment horizon, I would believe, is effectively infinite. And so they're often looking at new asset classes and are open to alternatives. Retirement plans are slow is uh is the reality that's one of the more conservative corners of the market with the the most effective or or most robust sort of gatekeeping requirements and they tend to be slow to catch up and that's fine they'll get there as well but that's how i would tier it uh family offices ras endowments and then the rest of the space yeah and may maybe going almost full loop to the to the first question because one of the early criticisms of etfs right that, that were famously invented by the guy who, who funded Vanguard, right? Mm -hmm, he, mm -hmm. I think he came up with this idea of tracking the market. And, right. and in the beginning, it was not a popular concept. People were saying that's, it's like, you know, like, ah, oh, you're only average. So, right. so, so that you, you don't want to be average. And the other, other people were saying it's kind of like against the market because you don't add intelligence to the, to the market by picking. You just go with whatever all the other people do. And with time, I think nowadays, the majority is investing in ETFs because it's such a good instrument to, to invest, to have exposure, and you, you have low fees, right? Mm -hmm. But also ETFs have this power because whatever they have in their portfolio, let's say you, you, you would acquire a, a huge fund and they would go in and buy Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin and Ethereum would explode <clears throat> because they are positioned at the right spot in, in, in the fund. Is, is that, am I thinking too simplistic about this or is there more to this theory? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a big debate about that, certainly in the index fund market for stocks, whether index funds are sort of the tail wagging the dog and they're driving the largest companies to get larger and larger over time. Mm -hmm. I think most of the robust academic studies in this space suggest that that would only happen if they ended up being like, 90 or 95% of the market, as long as there is a vibrant, active corner of the market, they will ensure that the market is efficient. And I think that's true in the crypto market as well. I mean, look, Bitwise is, you know, a billion dollar asset manager, and we're the largest crypto index fund provider in the world. So indexes are very small in the crypto market. A, I think they should be much larger. I think most people are best positioned in crypto with taking an index-based approach. But B, we're a long way from, you know, Bitwise wagging the dog of the crypto industry because we're piling into Bitcoin. Maybe when we get $100 billion under asset under management, you can have them back on and we can chat about that. Uh, you know, that'll be a good day. <laughs> Do you think, you know, like, because I think academically it is proven that the 
the, the, the indexed funds are outperforming the majority of the, the people. Can you already say with certainty that that also applies to crypto? Is that just uh, part of the market? It's, it's a great question. The reason index funds outperform the rest of the market is because they have lower costs and lower turnover. Right? By, by definition, all the investors in the market are going to get the average return of the market. Right? That is axiomatically true because they are the market. So all the investors will get the average return before costs. And then the reason index funds perform better is because they're the lowest cost way to access the market. Everyone else burns up their money trading in and out of things. That would be true to some degree in the crypto market as well, unless it's only Bitcoin that wins. The real advantage, if it's only Bitcoin that wins, then Bitcoin will outperform an index over time because all of the other assets in the index will fail. The real advantage of an index in the crypto market is just that it's early and you don't know how it will turn out, right? You don't know if it will be only Bitcoin and nothing else. You don't know if Ethereum will beat out Cardano, Cosmos, and Solana and others. You don't know if a new asset will emerge that will take over. You don't know if applications like, like Uniswap will be the ones that aggregate most of the value over time. This is so early in the market that it's really hard to know. And uh, you know, another, I think it's a Warren Buffett quote, is I'd rather be generally right than precisely wrong. Hmm. And the, the only risk in picking one crypto asset is that you could be precisely wrong. You could put all your money into Cosmos because you're really excited about its platform. And crypto could be huge. It could 10x from here, but Cosmos could fail and you would miss out. And the beauty of an index-based approach is you're not going to miss out. It's going to hold whatever is the winner. I think it's a great solution for everyone. And I think if, the, if we don't have a Bitcoin-only market, index funds will show their outperformance over time. But mostly it's that core promise that you won't be precisely wrong. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty valuable promise in the crypto market. I think you, 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 you summarized what I was trying to express to the listeners very, very well, to be honest, because the issue with crypto is that it's so tribal. Like people have this tendency to pick a team, to pick a technology as a team, and then they are fully allocated in that ecosystem. And they built their almost their identity on that ecosystem, on that technology. And if you you have been a so Terra bull, and you have been directionally right, as you as as you mentioned, now you have nothing, and you you leave the space. And if you have and if you are in the mid of the bell curve, right, and you say, yeah, maybe we we should have a portfolio, even though the whole portfolio is highly correlated you don't go to zero with one of the projects. And when you look back, I think that is also interesting. There's this one graphic where you see all the, the market, how it changed the market cap, right, of, of the coins. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the early days, the top 10, you have never seen those coins. You, you, you haven't, haven't seen them again. Besides one, XRP is really old. I realized when I looked at this graphic. And it's not unproblematic as well. So I'm quite impressed that they're still around. <laughs> and you don't have it in the Bitcoin 10. Not sure if that says something, if you're allowed to say something about XRP. Yeah. I mean, we, we obviously, XRP has significant regulatory risk, right? It's in a lawsuit with the SEC. We don't know how that will turn out. And that's, that's the, the reason it's, it's currently excluded. 
But you make an absolutely great point, two great points, which is crypto is so tribal and people get lost in that. Remember there were like a huge portion of the Bitcoin community that went with Bitcoin Cash and were convinced that Bitcoin Cash was the future and hated yeah. Bitcoin over a trivial difference in philosophical design in the end. And uh, they could have missed out on spectacular returns. And the same thing has been true in the layer one space. There were ardent EOS fans and there were ardent Algorand fans and there are ardent Cardano fans and there are Solana ride or die people and there's it's only ETH. And we're so early. Ethereum is not even 10 years old. I think it's highly likely Ethereum is the winner, but I'm not 100% sure of that. So yeah, look, you know, intellectual humility to admit that even if you love something, even if you want to overweight it, you're not 100% sure you'll be right. So why not diversify your bets? The thing I'm most sure about in crypto is that I think crypto will be bigger in 10 years than it is today. That's like the bet I want to make. That's the bet I'm making with my career. And it's the bet I make in my portfolio through owning an index fund. I just want exposure to that growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now let's give some financial advice. And I know that no red tape here. What I mean is, what do you know from, from academia? What is the perfect time? Let, let's say somebody listens to this and wants to go with that approach with, with the portfolio. What, what are the times that you have to rebalance, for instance? Mm-hmm. What does academia say? What is the best practice? And also maybe from a practicality view, like f- for a retail investor who, who does that all by themselves, right? They have to buy yeah. the coins, sell the coins. Yeah. You know, obviously I can't make a recommendation to any individual investor, but I can share what the academic data shows, which is first and foremost, you really need to rebalance. And by rebalance, I mean, you need to write down on a piece of paper that I will sell when X happens and I will buy when Y happens. Historically, having any kind of rebalancing strategy has led to better risk adjusted returns than not having a rebalancing strategy. Crypto is so volatile and the highs are so high and the lows are so low. Um, What we've shown in our studies is that it doesn't matter that much if you do it every quarter, every three months, or you do it every year, or you do it when you reach a certain percentage, like let's say it's 1% of your portfolio and it gets to be 2% and you sell back down. That's less important than just having that discipline and always doing it, right? You should have been buying at the end of 2022. And now crypto is up 70%. That doesn't mean you should be selling, but you should be thinking about it. And you should be looking at, does it still make sense in your portfolio? And and when you add a rebalancing strategy to a crypto allocation, historically, it's just made it this wonderful piece of a portfolio pie. So I love that you brought it up. It's It's really, really important. And would you also say, you know, how many different coins are protecting you from from catastrophic risk and also giving you the most upside? Because you obviously have opted one of the products at least is with 10 coins and it's also weighed um, with the market cap. Are there different approaches that you think could be interesting? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, the, the most important thing to me is that Bitcoin and Ethereum make up by far most of the market cap of crypto. And I would want exposure to at least those two. But I have all my crypto money in my own index fund. So I'll, you know, 
do what I, I'll, I'll, I'll speak with my actions in that mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, a diversified basket that rebalances over time, that's always updated is probably a good approach. I wouldn't want to own one crypto asset. I'd even feel uncomfortable just owning two. I like owning 10, but just make sure you, you stay diversified and you're not making an idiosyncratic bet. And don't fall in love with the new hot thing. There is always a new crypto asset that has better blockchain technology with faster settlement time. And it was developed by an award-winning PhD and it has a venture capital backer and it sounds super sexy. And the history of crypto is riddled with those projects that have some succeeded, but some failed. And so don't fall in love with the hot new thing. Stay diversified and, and invest for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And now we've talked about crypto, how much of somebody who's really bullish on crypto, like I am, mm -hmm. how much of the, you know, your net worth should you allocate to yeah. that space? And it might be different at the institutions, right? I, I mean, if you say 1%, that would be too little for me. What, what would be the upper bound? I'll, I'll give you two points of reference. The academic study would show that up to 5% of your portfolio, crypto is not the biggest driver of the maximum drawdown, which is when your overall net worth goes from X to Y. And that's a painful experience, right? When your overall value falls down. If you're below 5%, then historically, stocks are the biggest driver. The reason that's important is because you increase your behavioral risk of panicking at the wrong time if crypto becomes the dominant driver of your portfolio. Uh, the, the other thing I would add, you know, my personal portfolio is more heavily allocated to crypto than 5%. So maybe it's, maybe it's 20, 25% of my personal portfolio, but I'm in a unique risk situation and have a very long time frame and very high conviction. So every individual is, is different, but the data, the academic data looks at that 5% threshold and says, Above that, you increase your behavioral risk and you need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And through your perspective, we have seen now suddenly, and I, thought, I think that's super interesting also how the NFT space evolves and how it's almost like ironic, like let, let's say Solana, for instance, when they built the chain, they wanted to be this hyper fast, almost like a NASDAQ exchange. And, and right now there's almost no DeFi happening there, but they have people selling each other NFTs, which are basically just images, right? And there's somehow this blooming market that people couldn't imagine up before they built it. When you look at NFTs, do you look at them just as another coin or you know, like in a different form, because you could argue it's kind of like a micro coin or is it really something different? And would you also, do you stay out of that completely with Bitwise or do you sometimes, you know, do you have a product that's yeah. serving that market? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we actually have a, an NFT index fund, believe it or not. Mm. The Bitwise Blue Chip NFT index fund and it holds punks, Board apes, mutant apes, Azuki, Squiggles, Clonex, MeBits, Doodles, etc. That holds the top 10 by market cap PFP projects. You know, our, our view is probably a couple things there. 
We think some of the early and more important projects exist as important cultural artifacts of a digital age and important ways that digital natives and crypto natives signal wealth and value into the marketplace. And, and I think that's, that's probably true. You know, others are speculative meme tokens that, that have speculative aspects to them. And down the road, we think NFTs as a technology are really important as a form of digital property rights. You know, I, I think NFTs are extremely speculative and extremely risky, and it's unclear what the value will be. We created this product to help people who want to get exposure, who maybe can't afford a punk, you know, gain exposure on a fractional basis to, to the technology. Yeah, I think it's an interesting marketplace. I don't think we've heard the end of traditional NFTs. I think we'll hear more of them, but it's, it's quiet right now. Okay. And maybe looking at your competition, how do you see the field? I mean, obviously it's people that offer a similar thing, but what, what I'm getting at is more me personally, if there would be like a token that would be kind of being the index, I would be interested in a, in an on-chain solution. That would be my natural instinct, the portfolio approach, but on-chain. Are you working in that direction or, or do you say, look, our target group, our institutional investors they live in this other world, we will always serve them in this other world. Or do you go that way that also we've seen now with Coinbase going a little bit in, in this other direction, trying to go on chain with the layer two solution that they are launching. Love what, it. What are your takes? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I actually love all my competition. Crypto is such a nascent industry that the more good voices we have out there advocating for crypto, the better off we are. So I love what 21 shares is building. I, I support some of the work that Grayscale is doing. I think Galaxy is a, a well-run company and I, I wish that we all have success. Obviously, I'm going to fight them tooth and nail in every competitive situation and believe our products are better, but I also wish them success and think they're well-run entities. In terms of the crypto native approach, you know, there, there are a number of great firms that are building in that space. I think IndexCoop has interesting products in that space. And is also a good index provider in that they're thoughtful and well-constructed. Bitwise has looked at that, but we've chosen not to focus on it because we are focused more on that traditional finance market. That doesn't mean we won't enter it in the future. It just means right now we don't see that as our primary business development pathway. And we're happy to cheer the efforts of, of folks like IndexCoop as they, as they built in that space. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Matt, as you come to the end, do you have a message out there, let's say an amplified tweet, something that you would want to give listeners on the way? <laughs> yeah, I would, I, I would say two things. Crypto is a long-term game. Technologies take a long time to spool out. And when you're inside crypto, it can be painful to wait for it to get to that real world and mass adoption. But it's making tremendous progress. And so as an investor, that means if you're allocating to this space, it's really hard to know what crypto will do in the next week or month. And I'd encourage you to think about what it will do in the next year or five years or 10 years. I really think that's the time horizon that most people should be investing in. And then the other thing I've really found true about, about crypto, and I wrote a tweet about this and it, 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 it caught a little bit of attention, is that in crypto, all the short-term news is bad and all the long-term news is good. So one thing about operating in the crypto space is you're deluged by headlines about this regulatory risk or this hack or this thing. But if you step back and look at where crypto is today versus where it was a few years ago, 
it's orders of magnitude better. The custody is better. The banking is better. The trading is better. The developers are better. The applications are better. The use cases are better. Again, it, it speaks to the same thing, which is view this not from a minute by minute basis. It's hard because it trades minute by minute. But step back and think about where was crypto in 2015? Where was it in 2019? Where was it in 2020 when DeFi didn't exist? And we were just sort of seeing that emerge and stable coins had a billion dollars in assets and NFTs weren't a thing. And Nike wasn't printing $200 million in, in, in NFT revenue. And we weren't seeing all these new projects flourish. When you look at it from that longer time horizon, crypto is doing exceptionally well. And I would encourage people to keep that long view in mind. Perfect. Thank you so much, Matt, to coming on the show. That's a good final statement. Thank you so much to take your time out of your busy day and share it with, with the listeners and with me. Thanks for having me and thanks to everybody listening and learning about crypto. I admire you. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And each day there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episode and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.